This is an ABC podcast. G'day, I'm Clint Jasper and it's time for a trip around a big country. This week we'll meet the martial arts enthusiasts who are reviving a medieval style of fighting in the Queensland tropics. They're sparring with longswords and sabres while wearing thick protective fencing gear, making for a hot and sweaty pastime in northern Australia. We'll meet a Western Australian farmer who's put away the shearing clippers for good and transformed his old shearing shed into a distillery, with just about everything needed for making whiskey and vodka being sourced from the farm. And we'll visit a small rural hamlet where a mystery artist is leaving quirky, personalised statues outside residents' properties. The art bombing has tongues wagging and it's bringing the community together to enjoy a bit of fun and humour. We're coming out of COVID and there's a lot of pretty serious things going on in the world, but this has actually been one of those things that's joined the community. Uh, there's a lot of people that are talking that haven't talked for years. There's a lot of people that are talking that don't usually talk. So it's actually really good to see the community pulled together just for someone that's having a little bit of a a joke, I'd assume, so it's good. We'll hear more about that story and theories on just who is behind the mystery artworks. That's all coming up. But first today, we're heading into the mountains. More than 100 years after an historic hut in the New South Wales Snowy Mountains was built, a descendant of the original owner is part of an effort to resurrect the shelter that was damaged by bushfire. Melinda Hayder has the story. In a clearing of bushland not far from the Yukonbeen River in the New South Wales Snowy Mountains, Paul Delaney is busy sawing planks of wood. The South Australian has been hard at work with National Park staff and volunteers to rebuild Delaney's Hut, a place of special significance in Kosciuszko National Park. I used to ride through from Adelaide on my motorbike to visit my mother in Sydney and this was a good stopping off point and I was curious about the name Delaney so I went and asked my uncle who was born in Adaminibi along with my father and the rest of his family and uh, he told me that it was uh, my grandfather's cousin who built it. What followed was a lifelong connection to the timber hut, first built in 1910. A carpenter by trade, Mr Delaney became the hut's caretaker. On New Year's Eve 2019, he completed a maintenance check of the hut as bushfires took hold of the nearby countryside. I could see that there was the fire around Tumbarumba um, was burning rapidly and the whole sky was black and red. And I was driving into that and it was an eerie sort of feeling. And as I drove past the hut, all I could say was good luck. (laughs) Uh, It didn't look good. So I think it was another couple of days after that that there was rumours of the hut burning down and I was thinking, nah, yeah, nah, yeah. And then it was confirmed. Yeah, it was upsetting because we put a lot of work into that hut uh, and it was gone and it was unknown whether they would do a third one. So I'm very happy to say that they have done a third one and that's uh, going to continue this site being known as Delaney's Hut, which um, will help to relate to the pioneers not just the Delaney's, but all the other pioneering families in this area. Uh, My great-great-grandfather moved in here in around about 1840 uh, into this area, and so we've had a connection with it. But the people and the stories they tell you about how they lived and what they had to do are absolutely amazing. They're amazing people. To be isolated, no mobile phones, and being very self-sufficient. National Park's ranger, Megan Bowden, says the scene left behind was confronting, but not unprecedented. 
There was nothing left other than um, a few timber stumps. We recorded what was left of the hut and then using plans that we'd had previously, because the hut was burnt actually in 2003, we developed plans for rebuilding this new one. Many of the workers who were involved in rebuilding the small timber hut after it burned in 2003 have now reunited for the second rebuilding of Delaney's. One of those is the National Parks and Wildlife Service's Roger Rosenberg. When we first saw it, it was you know, very disappointing, but now you can see it's all back and you know, very satisfying getting it all done. New timber joists, cut out all the frame and the roof at our shed and brought it up here and basically put it together and put the roof on, did the chimney, the floor inside and Paul pretty well done the rest of it. Colin Jones lives in Ulladulla on the New South Wales south coast and is another volunteer working on the hut. He befriended Paul Delaney during the 2003 rebuild and was more than happy to lend a hand again 20 years later. We actually saw rebuilding after the first fires in 2003. So we noticed it was busy here on one occasion and we came up and introduced ourselves. And then when it burnt down the second time, we offered our assistance. So here we are. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Uh, I can fish as much as I like down the coast, but it doesn't give me the satisfaction that I get just doing a couple of weeks up here. So it's been good. And this has been a nice little spot to come and visit or stay on occasions when we've been snowed in. It's been very good. The hut is being rebuilt using timber salvaged from trees burnt in the fire and as Megan Bowden explains, there will also be some new features. The timbers have all been treated with um, a, a retardant and also we've got um, a watering system. As you can see, there's sprinklers going up on top of the roof and a water tank here so we can actually connect a pump to provide extra water protection um, to the place. Delaney's Hut is the second of 11 huts that will eventually be rebuilt. Park Ranger Megan Bowden says it's a long-term project, but an important one. I love it because it's the, it's the history of the place as well. So not only have you got the, the fabric that's really important to maintain, so all these huts are different. We have over 70 huts in the park. Some are made out of log cabin, other are made out of river stone like the ones at Jihai. Some are little bush humpies like the love nest on the sallies, up to the uh, amazing Coolamine homestead where you've got a number of houses and homes that people were living there and built by builders. But some of these are, are built by the, the lessees and the people who were living here at the time. So they've all got their stories and how they were built, as well as the many different land uses here in the park as well. Some of them are graziers, others were miners, others were timber getters, early hydrographers looking at the construction of the snowy scheme and looking at potential there. So they've all got their stories and the many families who are involved with either living or working here and their descendants are still in the area and still want to come back and see where their um, family were working and living. It's been wonderful during the rebuilding program. We've had people dropping in and talking to us about their connections. So them coming with their families and they're visiting the huts and, um, and many of their stories with them. So that's, that's another big reason why we're rebuilding them. It's keeping those social connections going, that social significance of these places as well. Megan Bowden says while the huts have historical significance for the early families who settled in the region, in more recent years they've also been important shelters for visitors to the National Park. 
when the leases were ceased um, and it became National Park, um, we've had uh, been maintaining the huts together with volunteers from the Kosciuszko Huts Association and other uh, users um, for people to use as emergency shelter or come and have a picnic or use. So it's really important here on this one on the on the Snow Mountains Highway. People often get caught in the snow unprepared if they haven't got chains and things like that. So it's sheltered many a person passing through. For Paul Delaney, working on the Hutt's restoration has been a way of connecting to his family's heritage. Yeah, it's very important. It's a very spiritual sort of thing, somewhere. Yeah. To be in this area, that's where the pioneers were working, family pioneers. So, yeah, very special. This big shed on a farm in Western Australia's Great Southern Region used to ring out to the sounds of shearing handpieces buzzing as they took the fleece of sheep. But not anymore. These days it's home to an on-farm distillery making spirits like vodka and whiskey using grain from wheat grown here on the farm. Hello, I'm Sophie Johnson and I'm visiting Woodlands Distillery hidden in the Parungarup Mountains nearly 400 kilometres southeast of Perth. Head distiller Peter Waters says the ultimate goal is to source everything needed for the distilling process from the farm. I don't think it's very common. We've looked around and there's not many people who do the 100% in-house. Um, I think it's only a small percentage across Australia, but it's probably hard for the people in the city with distilleries and all that, and I understand that. But we've got the opportunity to do it here, so it's just nice to be able to do it. The only thing we probably don't do at the moment is the malted barley, which we have to get from Perth because we haven't quite got there yet, but we're actually looking at producing that ourselves. So that's the next step. So hopefully oh, in 12 months' time, hopefully we're doing the whole thing 100% in-house, in so yeah, it'd be good. By using the resources on the land, Peter has seen a saving in input costs. Especially uh, getting rid of your wastewater and spreading it back on the paddocks and then feeding the grain to the cows, which adds a value to Kelvin's cows, and then getting the grain. We don't have to pay for freight. We don't have to... Uh, with extra costs on the, the grains and that. And if we can do our malting, we'll probably save 50% on our grains at least, so which is really good. What about water? What do you do there? Yeah, we're actually very lucky. Before we even started this project, we had to find good water and we actually went around, and well, Kelvin went around, and drilled a few holes and uh, then eventually up underneath the, one of the oldest hills in the world too, apparently, the, we struck water under one of the granite ridges there and it's like rainwater coming out of the ground. It, was absolutely, it produces about 100 litres a minute, which is absolutely awesome for what we need. The distillery is found on Kelvin Ridgeway's mixed farm and he sees great benefits from having a distillery on site. It's basically the ultimate value add to my wheat and that sort of thing. So I love growing grain, wheat in particular. So, and if I can convert, you know, a ton of wheat into something that's like can stay in a barrel and mature and age with um, value, sort of thing. The longer you leave it there, the more value it has. Um, and knowing it's our wheat, it's not someone else's wheat that we've bought in. And yeah, that's that's what I like. How much extra work is it to provide the wheat for the spirits? Uh, no, there's, there's, there's no extra work sort of thing, you know, just store it in the silos and that sort of thing and, yeah, just cart it down as we require and that's not a hard job at all. And it is not just his grain that is reaping the rewards. The livestock are just, um, we, or they, there's a couple of paddocks that are a little bit too wet for the cropping at this stage um, and they, they eat all the mash um, from the distillery. So, yeah, they, they enjoy it. They just hoe into it, you know, and, yeah, they get a tub every time Pete does a mash run and, yeah, so it's, it's a great way. They, they're getting the grain and the grass 
So yeah, nothing. we don't have to throw anything away. We can just cycle it back into livestock. Kelvin's shearing shed was renovated as a space for the distillery. That was a project, yes. And especially the floor, the big Jarrah floor, we had to hammer down, punch down every nail head before we sanded the floor. That was a three-day effort for like three of us. Um, but yeah, Pete's got the building skills as well. He's just a master craftsman. Yeah, and yeah, we insulated the whole building, re-roofed the complete building, put a whole new lean-to on the building. Um, but yeah, the building has character. The doors that were made from the sheep yards and some other yellow tingle from an old cattle yards we used for in the doors. And we had a local craftsman in Mount Barker made the doors, and then a, a blacksmith made the handles for us. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of a lot of the farms still here, sort of thing. But Kelvin is not all that upset to leave shearing behind. Making whiskey and that rather than dealing with sheep was a lot better idea to me. So yeah, um, yeah, I just spent enough time on the shearing stands here myself. So, um, but yeah, to repurpose it into something a lot better was just a, a pleasure. Kelvin Ridgeway is a farmer from Parongarup in WA's Great Southern Region, ending that report from Sophie Johnson. You also heard from Peter Waters, the head distiller at Woodlands Distillery that's operating in the old shearing shed on Kelvin's farm. Before that, Melinda Hayter took us to Kosciuszko National Park in the New South Wales Snowy Mountain, where volunteers are helping rebuild a heritage hut that was destroyed in bushfire. You can find more on both of those stories on the RN homepage. Head to ABC rn and search for a big country. My name's Clint Jasper with you on RN. Still to come, why martial arts from Europe in the Middle Ages are gaining a following in tropical Queensland and the mystery that's gripping and amusing a country Victorian community. In this tiny rural community in Western Victoria, something a little unusual is happening and it has local residents like Gwen Pilgrim both bemused and delighted. I came up to open my gates because I shut them because we have deer coming in from the mount. And when I opened my gates uh, on Tuesday morning, I, I just couldn't believe it. I just leaned on the gates and I just, um, you know, I just had a smile from ear to ear. I couldn't quite believe it because I've actually been looking for one for a while. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, and there was never one here. So I, I just couldn't believe it when I saw the, you know, the one here and I just, yeah. What Gwen couldn't believe was the quirky artwork that had turned up outside her property. Hello, I'm Alexander Darling and I'm visiting Warwick, just off the Western Highway near the town of Ararat. In recent months, a colourful and mysterious art trail has been popping up outside local properties. More than 20 sculptures resembling minions from the Despicable Me films have been placed near residents' homes. No one knows who's behind the little statues that have some personal reference to the resident that lives there like the one that avid gardener Gwen Pilgrim found, which included a plant stand and a pot plant. It was just wonderful. And I am a gardener and I'm president of the Arat Gardening Club. So, um, yeah, it all sort of fitted. So I'm sure that whoever is doing it must know that, you know, where I belong, so to speak. The creations are disused barbecue gas bottles that are expertly painted with pet food bowls and roadside reflectors for eyes and scrap metal for arms and hair, all quickly concreted into place in the dead of night. Even put the, um, the ring around it. It's been very cleverly built. So I brought my watering can up and, and um, you know, so I can water it when it needs watering and, um, yeah. What kind of plant is it? It's a Dianella. 
a blue flowered um, Dianella. Yes. There are now more properties in Warwick, population 70, than do have mailboxes than don't. As with Gwen's pot plant pal, most of them say something about the people who live nearest. A demon supporter has a red and blue mailbox outside his farm, some horse owners have a jockey minion, and a hose-holding minion stands beneath the town's fire danger sign. Shane Gunnanian, who owns the winery that is the hamlet's only business, has one pouring a bottle of plonk from his vineyard into a wine glass on its head. So a lot of the um, people we're putting on the, our community site, you know, I wish, I hope I get one, or I hope I, you know, someone gets one, and obviously the ones with the kids you know, really wanted one. So I reckon it's got to be a younger person. I mean, some of the old guys around here wouldn't even know what a minion is. Um, they probably have the skills to do it though, but uh, I reckon it's a young pers younger person that's you know, probably got kids or had kids. Um, we've got a few suspects, but um, everyone's blaming everyone else. I reckon it could be a gentleman called Bucky, local guy. But um, a few of us all think the same. But Bucky, aka Daniel Buckingham, denies this charge and has a counterclaim. No, <laughs> no, I'm not making a minions, that's for sure. Right. Why do you think people suspect you? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. So I think that the winery might have some strong ties there as well. So it's definitely not me making them, that's for sure. So we've got claims and counterclaims now then. <laughs> you think it's the winery? The winery thinks it's you. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, do you own an angle grinder? Is that... Yeah, I do. I think every farmer owns angle grinder, so... But, yeah, it's definitely not me making them, that's for sure. There are some who believe everyone in Warwick secretly knows who is doing this and just playing along to put their town on the map. This is an accusation that the townsfolk deny just as vehemently as they all deny being the minion maker. But regardless, Bucky says the minions have been a godsend for him, Gwen, Shane, and the rest of the town. My wife was only speaking to a young couple with some kids yesterday that pulled up and they said they actually came out for, to check out the minions and also look at the, um, and go for a picnic as well. So yeah. they really enjoyed it. So uh, we've heard different stories like people having a bad day and come out for a drive around the minions, have a bit of a laugh and then go, go home a lot happier, So, which is good to hear. Coming out of COVID and there's a lot of pretty serious things going on in the world, but this has actually been one of those things that's joined the community. Uh, there's a lot of people that are talking that haven't talked for years. There's a lot of people that are talking that don't usually talk. So it's actually really good to see the community pulled together just for someone that's having a little bit of a, a joke, I'd assume, so it's good. This is not the sort of activity you'd expect to see in the Australian tropics in 2023. It involves fighting with medieval weapons, mostly longsword, sidesword, infantry sabre and also military rapier. And as Veselin Petkoff, the co-founder of the Cairns European Sword Academy, explains, it dates back to the Middle Ages. It's a type of medieval martial arts which have been reconstructed from studying medieval manuscripts, translated from medieval languages, mostly Italian and German, into English. And we try to interpret what their old medieval martial masters used to teach their mostly nobles. And uh, we try to implement modern equipment and reenact what they used to do in the Middle Ages. Hello, I'm Amanda Cranston and I've come along to a training session of the Academy who meet weekly here in far north Queensland to perfect their sword skills. Despite the hot and humid weather, the participants are dressed in thick protective fencing gear. 
It is a full contact martial arts sport, so obviously injuries are possible, but there's some safety limitations which kind of make it safe to some extent. Well, we fight with blunt weapons, so no danger in stabbing each other or, or cutting each other, but we can still break fingers and concuss ourselves. <laughs> but we use appropriate protective gear, which is basically reinforced Olympic fencing gear. 80% of what we do is based on fencing, but we also do other things like grappling, disarming, more than just fencing with a sword. When you first got an interest in this, was there a club up and running in Cairns? No, we are actually the first ones, just a couple of enthusiasts who started by ourselves and got exposed to a few more advanced sword fighters uh, down south, mostly in Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide, and slowly built up an experience enough to be confident to teach other people. What attracts people to this sport? Someone who is interested in history, martial arts, someone who wants to try something different. There's a fairly small community in Australia, but we're a fairly tight and friendly bunch. So I'm guessing you'd need to be quite fit to be able to move around and hold these swords because they look quite heavy. They're actually not that heavy, but yes, we have to be fit because we fight in tropical conditions. So uh, we sweat a lot. We fight with a relatively light weapon, but you know, it's not like the swords you see in the movies. They're actually fairly well balanced and fairly streamlined, so they're really well designed. Well, come and show me these weapons that you'll be using tonight. So we fight with four main weapons. Uh, this one is the, uh, the most popular one. It's a long sword, which has been used in, in the past for about two centuries from the mid-1400s to the mid-1600s. It's a, a cut and thrust weapon because plated knights were quite invincible to some extent. They, well, they had thick armour too, uh, they didn't they? They had thick armour and they were like mobile tanks. Now this is something you'd imagine a pirate yes, would yeah. possibly use. It was used around that time, so a lot of pirates used to use something like this. It's got a very fancy handle. Yes, over time the hilt became more and more complex to protect the fingers. At some stage in Europe there was a lot of dueling happening. It is uh, one of the most versatile swords you can possibly fight with. Would you start off if you were learning something like this with maybe a broomstick or thing like uh, that? That's how we started. Is Just, it? Uh, with the broomstick uh, before we got our first swords. That's what usually newbies start with. I make sure that we practice in a safe way and also the most of the tournaments in Australia organized by sensible people. We are there to have fun and enjoy ourselves, not to kill each other. We are a fairly tight community. I'm Luke. I'm a GP. I'd gone to a, a Renaissance fair and had tried to, to get into some historical European martial art clubs, but they were all down in Brisbane. And always wanted to do it, just didn't have the access to it up this way. So a vest. We hit it on from there. And we got a couple of manuscripts and a couple of broomsticks and started interpreting them and then practicing moves and then sort of expand our repertoire from there. You've both competed. You're number eight in Australia at the moment. Sounds like you're pretty passionate about the sport. It's, it's great fun. It's, it, it's not just a physical sport, it's also a mental sport. And it does challenge how you approach situations and, and makes you think laterally and think about the psychology behind it. So is it a bit of a dance when the two of you are, are wielding your swords? Is it a particular routine that you tend to do? It is a little bit of a dance. So some days, if it's particularly fighting with Vess and I, we fought so many times for so long. You know each other's tricks and you know each other's weaknesses usually. There's very much different fighters of different styles and some it is quite flourishy and dramatic how they fight. Others are very singular and very tight in their movements. What do you love the most about it? I think I like camaraderie. You get the uniqueness of the sport. 
And do you have a favourite weapon to use? Usually my favourite's single-handed weapon. So the sabre and the side sword are my favourite weapons and comes more naturally to me. Long sword I do enjoy. I've done that the longest, but I find the other one easier. You've got quite warm costumes. I know that you're going to put those on soon and we are going to put the fan back on. How do you cope with doing that up here? Because it is very humid. Does that make it a bit harder competing in this? Here, yes. The worst part's probably the stink because your clothing, your jackets and your pants get so wet and dry and then it takes so long and to wash it, it takes even longer. So we usually do on the, the lesser side of gear. So we'll wear a jacket, gloves, mask, and usually fight in shorts and barefoot or shoes. And then when we're getting closer to a competition, we put the gear on and increase a little bit more of our heat resistance. But the jacket itself, you, you come away pretty drenched and a typical match only lasts three minutes. But it's a hot three minutes. Not a lot of people have heard of this sport, especially up here, because it is quite a unique sport. So would you like people to know about it? It's a fun sport and it's not a cheap outlay at the start, but it's worthwhile once you get over that hump. At the start, it can seem a bit tedious doing drills and, and basic technique. And you're like, well, where's the fighting? But as you get past the, the techniques and the basic things and you move into the sport and competing, you actually get to see the martial intent of what you're learning. It's mostly about having fun and enjoying ourselves. That was Vaselin Petkov and Luke Dornan from the Cairns European Sword Academy in far north Queensland. They were speaking with the ABC's Amanda Cranston. For more on that story, including video of the sword fighting in action, you'll find that along with all the stories you've heard on today's program on the RN homepage, abc.net.au slash rn. Just look for A Big Country. That's the show for today, and I'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.